Everyone wants to be seen. No matter what state you're in, a dog wants to be seen. Flowers and trees like to be seen and touched. Like it's that deep. We're humans. There's no difference just because you're struggling. doesn't. Even if you're super depressed, just someone showing up and sitting there, even if you don't want them to be there, has a huge impact. Hello, and thank you for joining our podcast, Hope to Recharge, a show that is designed to bring hope, inspiration, motivation, and some practical tips to those that are battling depression and anxiety, and to those that are supporting loved ones that are going through the journey in this difficult time of depression and anxiety. I'm here to tell you, you are not alone, and we will live beyond depression and anxiety. We will share our stories one story at a time in a world of mental health together is better. I'm your host, Matana. Thank you for tuning in. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. Today, I'm introducing the first doctor on this show, and I am so excited because I love talking to people that really did research and are extremely intellectual. One of my passions are is learning and understanding, but I don't have a lot of um, brain power to actually go to school and do it. So I love learning from very intellectual people. And I met this fabulous, fabulous lady, Selena Bartler, in a mastermind that I did. And immediately we clicked about the passion of breaking the stigma and making a better place for mental illness. And she does, Selena does not call it mental illness, and she's going to explain why and what she does call it, but we're going to get into it a little bit later. But I'm going to welcome Selena and she's going to give you a little bit of a background on who she is and what she does now. And then we're going to go back into understanding how she got there. So welcome, Selena. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be here. And, and I think what you're doing is really fantastic. Thank you. As you can hear, Selena is not an American. She's from Australia. <laughs> and I love her accent. And we actually, I am American too. I'm an Australian American. <laughs> okay, we don't hear the American part. <laughs> I lost, I have no ability to take on a new accent because I came here when I was 37. <laughs> yes. Okay. So she has this very cool. Australian accent. So we discussed before we recorded that she's going to speak a little bit slower, that we can understand her powerful words, because I feel like every word she's going to say is like diamonds, real diamonds. I want to ask you a little bit about who you are. First, tell me your description. Give me a description that the audience knows who we're talking to. Okay, so I'm a professor of neuroscience and I run a research lab in Australia dedicated to really understanding how the brain works down to its like smallest pieces and then back up to um, building apps and writing books and giving public health education talks about the brain. Um, and I've been doing this for nearly 30 years now and, I, and prior to my current research lab, I was running a research lab at University of California, San Francisco for 12 years. Hmm. And the really interesting thing then, completely different to now, I was developing medications for mental health, hmm. focused on addiction, alcohol addiction. That was my main focus because I was in an alcohol addiction center. And um, which is, uh, my lab was the lab that discovered Boranicline or Chantix. Wow. In the U.S., is good for alcohol addiction. That was my research lab that did that. Wow. Uh, yeah. 
And then I had a massive wake-up call um, in 2009-ish. Uh, I met a woman who started a research lab next to mine at UCSF in California, and she was looking at the way the brain can be changed no matter what age. And she was actually finally mapping the inside of the brain and how it can be changed forever. And that just really blew my mind because I was really, I'm a pharmacist by training as well. So I had really much a pharmacy hat on when I was developing medications for alcohol addiction. But she was, she had a different focus. And on my transition back to Australia, I was recruited back there to run a research lab because that's where I'm from. That's where my family is. And um, during that transition, her little seed grew into a massive tree inside my brain. And Mm. so I've actually retooled my lab into what we call neuroplasticity research. Mm. What we mean by that is the brain has a massive capacity to be rewired and rechanged and reshaped with, with effort and practice over time. That's what I mean by brain power. That's the piece that we don't see that's actually not present because we haven't grown it yet. Mm. If you see what I mean? So I became incredibly um, passionate and enthusiastic in this new area because I could see it has a massive ability to help people more than what I was doing before. So that was a big transition for me. And, and I, I don't believe in a one-fit solution for anybody mm. at all. I believe that every brain is completely different mm. and there is not one thing that will fit each person for sure. And I can tell you why that is from an evolution point of view mm-hmm. when we get down that pathway. But um, So that's who I am and that's my passion and I just love it so much. And it helped me personally and it's helped many people that I know these kind of neuroplasticity tools. To change what you're saying, the, the pattern of our brain, th- is this something that takes years and like 24 hours a day? Like what, what, when you say change, does that mean like we, we're going to think differently? We're going to see things differently? Are our habits going to be different? Yeah. Elaborate a little bit what you mean patterns of our brain. So what I mean by that is, so inside your brain, we have this thing called neurons and they talk to each other and they communicate. It's like a pipe. Think of a, a plumbing system where you have a pipe and there's one pipe joining another pipe, right? So those two pipe, pipes joining together, there's in, inside the brain it's the same. And mm-hmm. Between those two pipes, things are signaling to each other. Now, when you're in your old habits, your old patterns, right, that water is really flowing through those pipes. What we need to do is cut, and some of those pipes don't serve us very well, and we and we end up like going down pathways that are really negative, and uh, they feed on themselves, and that becomes a massive river inside the brain, and you, oh. and and you think, oh my god, I can't get off this river, right? You're not even re- even aware you've created a river. Mm. So when we talk about neuroplasticity and changing, all we mean is we're damming that river and creating a new stream, a new piping system inside the brain and it's a physical thing because the brain has the capacity to do that so it's not going to change everything inside your brain it's just going to change one thing at a time so for example people that actually tuned into your podcast right that made a decision i'm going to listen to that because i'm sick of this current situation or i want to help someone in a situation i don't know what to do i feel helpless we've done everything nothing's helping just by tuning into your podcast and actually truly listening to what we're saying to each other, truly listening, not just paying it in the car and driving, mm-hmm. that in itself is going to go into the brain and make a small change, right? Because we set an intention 
to do something different. So for example, if you have a really hard day at work and you're really stressed out and normally you come home and you start to pour a glass of wine while you're cooking dinner, as an mm-hmm. example, and that one glass becomes two or three. Now imagine coming home, as soon as you get out of the car, you just simply go for a walk to the tree in the front yard or you walk around the block. You've immediately instigated a change and your brain will respond accordingly. And then and- what, whatever happens afterwards is basically a ripple effect of that change. That's right. That's what I'm trying to say. It's the simplest, it's, it's simple but not easy. So all of this stuff that we're going to talk about is simple but not easy because if it was easy, none of us would have depression, anxiety or, or any kind of struggle or suffering. Right? Mm-hmm. We'd just all be making these amazing changes to feel positive and fantastic. Mm-hmm. Right? But that's right. not happening in the world at all. Right, right. So everything we're going to talk about is really simple but right. it's just not easy to implement. Right. I say it's like um, building a muscle. It's, it's, a, it's a simple technique, but you have to do it over and over and over until that muscle grows. The six-pack doesn't happen overnight. It is a lot of work, a lot of repetition. The steps can be the same steps every single day and the same exercise or the same routine, but you're building that muscle. And I, I think that that's what you're trying to say. It's a simple work out with a brain that does a long-term impact if you're persistent. Yes. And I don't blame any single individual in this not knowing that this is what you can do is because why I'm passionate about this education process is we've never, ever taught people in school that they can train their brain like a muscle. Mm. We talk about the brain in some very wildly rocket science terms or that it's outside our control we outsource our brain to everyone else but ourselves so that's kind of where I got really upset and came out of my lab and I thought wow I've been in my lab for 25 years I've studied it down to its bolts and I've published hundreds of papers not hundreds but 100 papers I'm like and who's read those papers and how many people has it actually helped (laughs) right Right. So does this, do you think that this exercise can actually be implemented by people that are suffering from depression and anxiety and help them live a better life, a happier life, a less anxious life, or maybe even a meds-free life if they take it to a serious degree? Yes, I do, because I did it myself. Oh, so let's, let's talk, let's rewind a little bit. If you talk, if you're saying you did it for yourself, Let's talk about your history. You, um, the audience doesn't know, but you, ha- you mentioned to me when we met that you had a sister that was suffering with mental health mm-hmm. and she passed away from it. Tell me a little bit about growing up with her, what it was like and what happened when she passed away and what was that switch that you made? I'm, I'm going to do something different because what she went through and what we went through is horrific and I don't want the world to go through this that's exactly how, exactly what happened. So I was a pharmacist in training and I got a phone call from my mother in 1989 and she said, Selena, something's wrong with your sister. Can you come? And so we went and they locked her up in a lockup ward in um, Brisbane, Australia, and they gave her a straight jacket and an overdose of haloperidol and she was catatonic. And this is a young girl who's 21. She wasn't violent, nothing. They just didn't know what it was. So she got the diagnosis of what it's not. It's not bipolar, it's not this, it's not that. And so they, at that time they diagnosed her with something called schizophreniform, meaning it wasn't really schizophrenia but there was nothing else that they could put it down to. 
because she was so basically she said she was hearing voices I think that was the thing so you gotta be really careful what you tell people that's what I say to people right right <laughs> I hear voices all the time right I'm not trying to make light of it but so right I just didn't know very much back then I was right really young. I also think nowadays they take a little bit more of an intake before they they put a label on a person well, I think so. I hope so. But mm-hmm. it hasn't changed dramatically in those 30 years, in my view, but not mm-hmm. the way society still views it. Anyway, from my point of view now, everything I've learned, it's really crazy when you kind of understand what it, it is really. It's more about us than it is about people with mental illness. Anyway, so during that time, I stopped being a pharmacist. I went back, did my PhD, decided that, oh, we clearly don't know how the brain works, do we? Because you would never treat someone like that. Because what she went through was horrific, like mm. horrific. That was enough to re-traumatize anybody, really. And it's not the doctor's fault, the nurses. It's no one's fault. It's just where we were in terms of what we understood or, you know, they're just find, following protocol. That's how I see it now. But it just upset me. So I went back and did my PhD. I didn't know how to use a pipette. Um, I started in neuropharmacology and then I moved to a postdoc in neurobiology for six years. And then I moved to America to start a lab here. And I've been doing it ever since, basically, trying to understand the brain to improve our understanding so that we can improve how we treat people with mental health problems because I don't even see it as a problem. I just see it as we're all on a spectrum somewhere. Mm-hmm. And the brain has strengths and it has weaknesses. And we shouldn't go around our weaknesses. We should be training them so that, we're, that they're stronger. That's how I view it now. Just give me a little bit more about your sister. What was it like? I want to understand what she went through and what happened from from the beginning of her life. Did you see symptoms or was it one day? No one ever asked that. No one ever, ever asks that question. They never oh. want to know. Oh, I want to know. That's the main focus for me. <laughs> I want- Thank you. My sister will be really grateful to hear that. So this leads us down the pathway of adverse childhood experiences and you can imagine as a neuroscientist after 25 years recognising that most likely Francesca suffered because of an adverse childhood experiences Mm -hmm. in her family and it's not anything intentional. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just what I've learnt about the brain. So when she was born, um, she was born second, I was first, so I got a lot of attention she came second three years after me, but my brother was born almost immediately after her. So she got very little attention. And this is why I write this in my book about love and attention being, being the antidote to most things. <laughs> mm. And she really didn't get any. No one's fault. It's just busy parents. Um, her brother was born, first boy in the family. So there's a lot of, a lot of kerfuffle about him. And then I was first born, so I got my grandmother's attention. She was sandwiched in between. So, and then she started to get the label of the clumsy one Mm. Um, and there was nothing there. She was just the most charismatic, crazy, (laughs) yeah, just fun-loving person. She always had tons of friends Mm. because she was a charismatic one. And then she just had a series of little things that happened. Like you would just put it down to being naughty. You know what I mean? You would never say anything more than that. Uh, A teenager, like a classic teenager acting out. Yeah, she'd do some naughty things at school. My other sister was at boarding school with her. I think I wasn't there for that, but I think she did some things that she probably shouldn't have done. But nothing that you would put down to other than what you'd see now in a bad teenager. Right. It wasn't even that bad. She wasn't taking drugs or anything. You know what I mean? It's just like naughty right. behavior, like skipping so, class. Right. 
small things like that. So uh, let me just pause for a second. So what what I, what I'm understanding is that as you as a doctor and neuroscientist now, you would not diagnose her as someone that was born with mental illness. Well, that's a different question because my father's uncle probably had. So we now know that. 60% can be explained genetically. Mm. But the environment that that brain grows up in can impact whether that susceptibility is expressed or not. Okay. Okay. So, for example, me, her, my brother, we may all have the susceptibility, mm-hmm. but we've got extremely different environments between the ages of zero and three mm. and then 10 and 14 because during those periods, neuroplasticity switches are on. So mm. anything negative or traumatic enters the brain big time. The, fact, I, the reason I say that no attention is because that does impact the way the brain develops. We know, know that, right? So the f- way her circuits were going to be forming was altered by that experience. So you're saying that we're all in a way susceptible to some kind of it. Some are more and some are less. And by our environment and traumas or whatever it is it depends if we're going to go extreme left or right or center or deal or whatnot perfect explanation mm. and not only that not only that we now know that we also inherit memories from previous generations <laughs> that's a whole other topic holistic topic and we now know we can f- send it forward to three generations mm. So that's a micro, and it's not just in the genes, it's in micro RNAs. So that's wow. a whole other topic, but that's very important though, because why I bring that up is so important is because we so much spend time blaming ourselves. We really do about this childhood, about that thing. But if you actually sit back for a second and go, oh my God, think of what my parents actually went through mm. and they're doing the best they can with the situation they mm-hmm. encountered. I'm not trying to aim for forgiveness straight away or anything, but I'm just saying, you know, like grandparents, they could barely, they didn't really even have vaccinations necessarily, if you know what I mean. Like if you you really can sit back and look 10,000 feet, then you realise, wow, I actually had it pretty good, (laughs) even though it was perfect and I wish my sister didn't get that and I wish I didn't struggle. I wish my other, you know, each of the members of our family struggled in their own way with different types of mental health things, if you want to call it that, whether you call it addiction or depression or anxiety or eating disorders or you name it, we've all had something in a way. Now that we're older, it all comes out when you're older. But me as a neuroscientist, I can actually see it theoretically and understand it, which gives me a lot of compassion for a lot of people, everyone, everyone, not just my own family. but You see how it evolves, you see how it comes about. Yes, and that gives you the forgiveness and the compassion to realize that you're doing really well. That's yeah. not the way to cure it, but I'm just saying it's it's important that people have this fundamental knowledge, right? Because at right. the moment we spend a lot of time trying to unpack stuff that we can actually not unpack mm. because it goes back multiple generations. Wow. If wow. you see what I'm saying? Yes. So we spend too much time trying to work out why when we'll never really work it out. But the, the thing why I'm passionate and I love talking to you and that you're doing this to help people is because the thing you can do, which is so positive, is we can actually draw on the line in the sand today, you and I and anyone listening with us, and move forward and recreate the future you want and right. just let go. Of the past. 
because we can't change it. It's impossible and we'll never actually really work it out. We can't. Right. We can work it back to, out to our childhood, but then you can't work out your parents, you can't work out your grandparents, you can't work out your great-grandparents because we know you've inherited some of that. Right. So I want to go back to your sister. So she was a teenager, a regular teenager, acting out, trying to get a little attention, being her. Lots of attention. Lots of, right. Which she didn't have, which she didn't sure. naturally yeah. get. So yeah. she was trying any which way to get it. And she got yeah. it in the more negative way than the positive way. And so she was a teenager. And then? Uh, so then um, she kind of just took off one day to Sydney on a bus with a garbage bag full of clothes when she was about 18 or 19. And she was doing some more acting out stuff then that was kind of more outlandish in a way. But she liked to have a good time, that's for sure. And she had really lots of friends. But then something happened, and I don't really want to say exactly what happened, but something happened in Sydney when she was there. It was pretty traumatic for her and because she, she's such a beautiful soul and loves children and animals and, and something really traumatic happened to her there and that really triggered the psychotic break, mm-hmm. if you like to call it that, where she started to hear things and started to do irregular things that sent her into hospital. So it was based on a trauma. Yes. That there was a she break- had a breakdown from yes. a trauma. Mm. Yeah. Exactly. Were your parents involved? No. They, well, they can't, we, we were all there for the hospital, but my parents suffered. They didn't really believe crisis mm. because no one wants to believe any of that, you know, that day. It's a lot of shame and fear. Yeah, exactly. But, um, but I was there in the lockup ward with her for three weeks, not overnight, but I was there every day. So I saw, yeah, it was literally a lockup ward with mixed so- ward. Wow. Naked, <gasps> yeah, I know. And that's yeah. the first time she went, she was hospitalized. Yep. And a padded cell and they had, yeah, very traumatic for her. Why did they go to such extremes so fast? 1989. They didn't know better. In Brisbane. Yeah, that's all I can say um, to that point, honestly. And what happened after that? Oh, so then... Um, Oh, they made her a ward of the state, so she was out of my parents' care too for some time. Um, it's just archaic. I mean, things have got better, but, you know, Brisbane's more behind than here, mm-hmm. um, than California. Anyway, um, well, then again, I don't really know. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, then what happened was um, that was when she was 21, and then it's, it's more or less the similar story to what you hear where in and out um, – She'd go into full remission and she'd be on really low doses of drugs and then she'd get a job and then she'd leave it. And then she managed to finish her science degree, which is amazing. I don't know how she did that. And then it was just this thing where the doses start to escalate a little bit because she'd be seeing a doctor and she might have something happen. Um, And then over time, the doses just kept escalating and then she'd end up on different drugs until the end of her life. She got metabolic dysfunction where she couldn't lose weight anymore. Like she was overweight and that, and she was someone that really cared a lot about what she looked like and that really killed her too. And then she had seizures from the drugs that nearly killed her. Um, and basically, but after the seizure, she was never the same again. She never ran into remission anymore. The fortunate thing for my sister is that she had us in the sense that we bought her a place to live, so she had her own place, and then she, my parents paid for her to be able to check into a private health care when mm. she wanted to check herself in, and they paid for that. So she had a, my brother bought her a car. So overall, 
you had support and I often think about what that would look like for someone that has nobody that cares at all. That really throws me off because I just saw what it took us to just keep her having some kind of life, if you know right. what I mean. Right. And then she lost all her friends slowly. Like at her funeral, there was only my friends, my sister and brother's friends and my parents' friends. Mm. And the only person that showed up for her was her nurse and not even her doctor who looked after her for 11 years. Came. Wow. Well, this is what this is the thing that breaks my heart about this kind of illness is you, no one wants to know you. So sad. It is. It is sad. It's heartbreaking. But the, it sounds like you were so supportive as brothers and sisters as a family. Yes and no. I think in the beginning we weren't as supportive as we could have been because we didn't. It was all new to us, and p- parents have an expectation that all kids are going to be the same. At some mm-hmm. And back in that generation, it was very um, uh, taboo, hidden away, and you don't right. tell anyone. And mm-hmm. and the only reason I know, I think my father's uncle may have had it, is because I saw him at a funeral, and he looked like he might have been struggling with something like that. Mm. That was hidden, never said. This is schizophrenia, which is you know, harder than depression and anxiety right. in some sense from, a, from how people look. Because mm-hmm. with depression and anxiety, you can hide a lot of things and right. protect something. And so you can be more socially acceptable. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Right. But I don't know if you've noticed this or your audience has noticed this, but people kind of start to dissociate themselves from people that are struggling in a way because right. they think a bit scared that they might get labeled too. I don't know what it is. I, I, I think it's also a lack of knowing how to deal with them. Like if somebody goes manic, what do we do? How yeah. do we stop it? Like we, we, it's just a lot. La- I don't think it's from being cruel. I think it's from yeah. ignorance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. And, and shame and a lot of shame like, oh, um, am I going to be embarrassed being seen by this person that's having a schizophrenia attack, um, yeah, yeah. screaming out loud? Like, do, can I calm them down? Do I have the power to calm them down? Is it something that I can comfort or not? I agree. So I think there's a lack of knowledge, a lot of shame and fear. Yeah. Well, you know, in her life by the end was really difficult, really difficult. Um, Did you know that she's going to die? No, I didn't. No, no, it was a shock. She died, um, yeah, overdosed. She overdosed on purpose or just to? She was on a drug, and I won't name names, but we think that contributed to to it. Do you think she wanted to live? Do you think she wanted to fight it, or she was sick and tired of fighting it and the struggle? I can't really know the answer to that. Um, It's a really good question because she died when she was 37, and I used to talk to her over the phone when I got more comfortable with the whole thing myself because I struggled with it too in the beginning, to be really honest, because I mm-hmm. didn't know anything. I was not educated. I was very ignorant. I was very afraid, and I didn't want her to be suffering. So for me, it's been a journey of understanding and compassion too. Um, but I think I used to talk to her, and I say to her, are you lonely at all and she go and but she wasn't because she had she had a religious kind of psychosis meaning whether it's psychosis or not i don't actually know that answer anymore either just say just putting that out there right she used to talk to jesus a lot she had a lot of religious stuff like for instance she took off and drove all the way across australia one time which is just like driving across north america mm-hmm. and to marry jesus on the beach on the wow. other side of and she went wow. drove through a desert without water on her own, for example. Wow. wow. 
You know what I mean? So wow. she's always entertaining herself. <laughs> wow. Did she have a love to life? Was she happy when she was okay? Yeah, she's beautiful. Like if you ask my daughter and my son, she just loved children and animals. Mm. They loved her. She just had that beautiful spirit, soul mm. spirit. She's just a beautiful person. She Before her psychosis she had tons of friends mm. want to be an actress and stuff like that so she's very charismatic and um my daughter saw at my at her funeral my daughter actually was only four years old and she stood up at the end of the funeral and she'd never really spoke much at that point and she pulled out her binky i think mm. you call it binky here a and pacifier. she just pacifier pacifier yeah. and she pulled it out of her mouth and said these four sentences about how much francesca meant to her wow fully fluid sentences and I wow. and my now ex-husband taped it all I'm just like wow that's amazing wow yeah because she just she just reached people in that direction do you know what I mean at the heart level she was a heart person right and the end of her life was very was very different than the 11 years that she was suffering like the the end was really rock bottom I think she had multiple really I don't think this, this is not the first time so the first time was in my house in Canberra and she just didn't realize that if she, I don't really want to go into details. Okay. No, I it's did. okay. But yeah, I came home, I was pregnant with my first child and found her. So that was stressful for her. And uh, so that was when she was probably, that was probably a good, that was in 97. So that was probably less than 10 years after her first diagnosis, passed away in 2006. Um, but we got better with time in terms of at that point she was with me because I was a living doing my postdoc in neuroscience and she didn't know where to go because she was in and out of mum and dad's house and she didn't have her own place and then and she had no hide like she'd throw tea leaves all over the place yeah she had no hygiene when she was in sick right and um, when she came down to me like it was hard to live yes. with her I'm and, sure. Uh, and my parents struggled, but then I came up with a solution to buy her her own place. Mm-hmm. And, um, that way she could, because she was by that stage, late 20s. Mm-hmm. And so, and it just to relieve my parents and just so she had her own space. And then she could go to different people if she needed to. And that changed everything. So that gave her the next 10 years, I guess, of her life. Right. But um, she did pass away in her, her flat. And unfortunately, we took a long time to find her because... We were all away. My sister had a baby, so the whole family had flown to Sydney for her baby, and she did it during that time. Mm. Yeah. Wow. That's that's quite of a trauma for the whole family. Yeah, it's hard. It is hard, but um, we miss her. I see. I was just showing her picture to my daughter today. Wow. <laughs> Thanks. She's here blessing us all. Right. What would you tell a brother, sister, mother, or spouse or best friend of somebody that's going through what you know now as a neuroscientist and what you knew from before of how hard the struggle is seeing a loved one what would you what advice would you give them love compassion and understanding and not fear not fear isolation and tying them up somewhere so you don't have to worry about it um, and that's really difficult to do. Just know that they're not themselves when they're in that state, but they're totally, we're all about one or two steps away from that. If we had different conditions, it could have been us. Mm. Uh, 
and that they're looking for love and attention just like we are, all of us are. The more that you can step and lean into the, that hardship and the emotional pain of it, like one thing I like to, one analogy I like to always bring up is that in cancer wards, they're full of flowers. Mm. In mental health wards, there's no flowers. I know. And oh. um, this kill me. Um, I'm just like, here's my sister in hospital. There's not a flower to be seen. <gasps> How depressing is that? You know what I mean? It's so wrong. What's, it's horrifying. It's, like, it's just because you can't see inside the brain to see that it's got just the same difficulties as someone that has cancer. You know what I mean? It's just to yes. handle cancer and we raise all this money for cancer, all right. this, not for brain health and mental health, you know? Yeah, and we, which is the biggest problems, actually. <laughs> right, right. And the loneliness going through it is so painful and it's like it makes the wound so much more painful. So and the, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So your advice? Just look someone in the eye and give them flowers. Mm. <laughs> physically flowers just look everyone wants to be seen mm. no matter what state you're in a dog wants to be seen mm. flowers and trees like to be seen and touched like it's that deep where humans there's no difference just because you're struggling doesn't even if you're super depressed just someone showing up and sitting there even if you don't want them to be there has a huge impact on mm. your health trajectory mm. um, it could be take a while but we all need human connection and that touch, like just touching someone stimulate. I know this is going to sound scientific, but it stimulates the release of oxytocin and, and feel good chemicals. Absolutely. And just rubbing their hand. It's all you have to do. You Isn't just, there research shown that babies that were not touched a, enough are like something's wrong with their development because they didn't get that nurturing from touch? That's what I'm telling you. See, my sister missed out on that. You mm. see? And it was nothing intentional. Right. Not, nothing. How important. It's everything. And just think of yourself, like, when you get touched by somebody or someone just holds your hand and looks you in the eye, mm. how good do you feel? Just to be seen. Say, right. I, I see you. I love you. Right. right. Like, I, I know it sounds simple, but to do it is difficult, really. Because right. if, if it was easy, we'd all do it, right? Mm. <laughs> the more so someone that's suffering from a lack of how much are they craving that and how much does it help when they get the simplest, kindest word? How much, how does it, it empowers them so much? Yeah. And people um, struggling like my sister, she's a highly, highly sensitive person. Mm -hmm. So she could read people. She was, mm -hmm. a, real, she was a really caring soul. Mm -hmm. When you're super sensitive like that, you do have often more chance of being hurt in this way yes you know I mean? yeah absolutely absolutely and i know that i call it the higher vibration the more connected we are yeah. the more susceptible we are that's really true i really see a pattern i see a pattern i always say ignorance is bliss because when you're ignorant there's less so you're not as connected and you're not as aware and your intuition is not as sharp so but true. you're not suffering like all like I know that I'm very intuitive. One of the things that I was gifted was intuition. When I was a little girl, I used to have dreams that came true and people used to say, Don't dream about me. And if you dream about me, only dream about good things like winning the lottery and finding my husband, you know? <laughs> that was like my a pattern that and I was afraid to tell people bad dreams because they were really real. Being connected paid a price. 
And I believe that it paid a price with my mental health. I really believe that there's a connection between it. And they call it spiritual people, whatever they're going to call it, but we're hot. We have a higher vibration and we're more connected. Just like we can receive the good on a higher frequency, we receive the negative energy as well. Yes. And you have to be really, so this is a great topic because I just came off that retreat I was telling you about. Mm which is talking all about this. Yeah, the, the vibrations, yeah. yeah. Yes. And, and, but we do, and, and the interesting thing, it's so funny we were talking about this totally off where I was going, but basically what you have to do then as these people, like I have good intuition but probably not as highly involved as you are or my sister was, mm-hmm. uh, but you have to protect yourself from those. A hundred percent. I used to tell my healer, Yes. I used to tell my healer, I call him my healer. He doesn't like when I call him my healer because he always says, you heal yourself. I just hold your hand through the process. Wonderful. wonderful. Yeah. So he used to say to me, I used to say to him, please disconnect me, disconnect me. I'm feeling too much. Disconnect me. And I really used to feel, I used to walk into Walmart and just feel, and I had to leave. I would know if there's a lot of negative energy. I know this is a little bit off topic and but I know what you're saying. Not. It's a 10,000 foot view. And it's very important because you're saying, what can we do to help? What can you do to help a loved one? And this idea that you're bringing up, I think is essential because I actually think, how do you heal yourself if you're still taking in all of that energy? You can't really, can mm. you? Because it's going to take you down. And we're trying to help people go up. Right. I mean, we can talk a little bit about what I did eventually, but in terms of brain training, but what you're talking about is so important is disconnect me. And I don't know how you go about doing that, except to realize at first that that's actually happening. Right. 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 You didn't be aware of it. I certainly wasn't aware of it. It took me time. It took me time till I felt the real pain during the depression. It was when I was very, very, it's like after a burn, you hurt, you touch your skin it's super sensitive. That's the way it is. When you're in depression, you're, I felt it on me that my intuition was very, very strong. Mm-hmm. And I knew the positive and negative energy around me. Interesting. So you're saying you should give love, affection, attention, but can we actually prevent them from going to a mental institute to help them? Like we're not, we're not equipped to deal with these things always. Sometimes they need, I think, outside resources. Is that not true? Oh, definitely. Like if you've had a break, you're talking about people that are actually experiencing something serious, then absolutely right. There's current systems in place are the best that we currently have to offer. Mm-hmm. What, I'm, what I'm trying to do is help educate people about how we can make a change going forward for our children, our grandchildren. Mm because we've never been taught to train our brain like a muscle so how of course it's going to do whatever it likes to do over multiple generations of taking in trauma and fear and stress the brain just starts to break down you know and because we've never told people that that's what the brain does unless you train it like you're training your arm to build muscles you've got to tighten the brain right it's it's the same thing and if we could get that to our children, then uh, and and there's another thing that's very important too, that people don't understand, and that's how adverse childhood experiences really wire the brain for these things later in life, mm-hmm. and that's been studied for 25 years, and it just breaks my heart that that's not in parenting classes. Mm-hmm. You know, we know that you've got to bottle breastfeed. You know, we we know all these facts, but we've never been taught 
how these things like lack of love and attention, lack of touch, this is what happens to the brain's development that leads to depression, anxiety, um, all of these other things much later in life. But those two things have never been really connected. So that's the bit I'm talking about. And I fundamentally, that's why I said to you when we first met, and we were really excited to meet each other, why I'm so on this gung-ho about brain health is because I know the brain is super strong and can be trained forever, but we've just never taught anyone how to do that. And okay, let's give them a little bit of a background on that because I wanted to touch on that. So when I met Selena, I introduced myself as my, my passion was to break the stigma and bring more awareness to mental health. And she right away said, I don't call it mental health. I call it brain health, brain health. So elaborate on that a little bit. Okay, because I think everyone has a brain. And then we, and when we're at Thanksgiving and we're talking about how we have this physical trainer and we're doing um, soul cycle or we're doing Pilates, we're totally happy to talk about those facts. Mm-hmm. But no one's t- talking to each other about, oh, guess what I just did for my brain health today to make my brain stronger. And I just feel like the brain is so powerful. And it, even if you want to call it mind, I don't mind. It's just more about teaching people that the brain is so strong and can be trained and changed with practice and that we should all be talking about it so that it's so we take the stigma out of it because in, from my experience and dealing with my sister and seeing how she was treated or seeing what happened to me, etc. when we call it mental, people think of it as crazy in a way. They don't think of it as mental strong, like smart. They think of it as mental health, meaning you're crazy. And, I, and, I, and that's why it's got this big stigma attached to it. Whereas I feel like brain is strong and powerful and everyone has one and we should be talking about it like our muscles and nothing more. And so I just would like to take out all of the stigma around it. That's all. So that's, my, that's where I got that passion from. Do you think it's possible to change, to go to all the therapists in the world and... No, not yet. No, but I think it'll be grassroots. And pharmacology and, and tell them, okay, it's not called mental health, it's called brain health. Oh, not, in, not in the US yet, because in, in Australia, they actually made some significant inroads here. And if you do a Google search on brain health, you'll see that come up a lot more over there. And what happened was about probably six or seven years ago now, the Australian government put significant resources into creating organisations called Beyond Blue and Are You OK? So there's this whole week where people have to say, ask people, are you OK? Mm. And so it's the stigma around depression and anxiety is totally being changed. Right. And it's because of this process of being able to talk about it and because there were a lot of suicides and they're trying to change the trajectory of what was done. It started over there and people are much more kind of open about the brain now compared to like seven years ago, say. Wow. It's slowly changing. And like all things, I mean, things change, right? Look at the iPhone, it changes every year. And and the first time you get it, you're like, oh God, I can't, oh my God. (laughs) Or if you move to an Android, right? Right, right. It's so funny. I was just thinking about that the other day because I updated my phone and I hate when my system doesn't update because everything changes. And I realized, you know what I realized the other day? I realized I was postponing it, but I said later, later, later. And my Android, I think, caps out after 30 days. It's like, I'm not asking you anymore. I'm doing it when you're sleeping. And I wake up in the morning and it's done. And I'm like, oh my God, where are my apps? How do I do this? And I noticed the first thing I'm noticing 
is the negative. The first thing, oh, I can't find this. Oh, my da, da. But did my brain actually notice, wow, there's an improvement in the scrolling of the screen. There's an improvement in the yeah. interface. Uh-huh. improved. No, it took me time. And I realized that I first noticed the negative just because we don't like change. And I wasn't willing to take the discomfort of the new, even though it could be so much better. Okay. How long did it take me to learn the, the changes? Maybe a week. Maybe. So yeah, it takes, we don't like change. We don't like exercise. We don't like new things. It just, we, we love what we know. Exactly. And so now apply that to what brains that have inherited over generations mm-hmm. and think of our generation has way more knowledge than right. the previous one, the previous one. Right. But all of that stuff that they were doing came into our brain. Right. So, and just forget about people. Let's go back to animals, plants, and mushrooms. That mm. We have the same circuitry that, that is in mushrooms. That's wow. all about survival, right? So, wow. Well, mushrooms talk underground for miles and they have action potentials or le- electrical currents and they have right. stuff that we have in our brain. So the whole idea for a mushroom is to survive. That's it. And spread itself and protect the earth. How interesting. Yeah, so that's what we're fighting. That's why it's so hard. And you're on a huge mission, huge mission. Selena, this is, we're already almost an hour and I feel like if we can do two more, <laughs> two more sessions and I will have... I did I, tell people some tools. No, so I'm going to, what I'm going to do is this. You're going to give me a quick one, one minute, one minute, but then we're going to have a whole podcast interview about that tool. And, and then I want you to also do another, I just want to tell them what to look forward to because you have such treasure in your mind. You have so much to give to the world and so much to help the world. So it'd be sad to not just elaborate on two more podcasts or three more, whatever we need. So tell me about this new app you created. Yes, it's called Trace It. It's not on the app store yet. We're still building it. But it came about because I was working with people that had all sorts of different mental health things going on, you know, like PTSD, um, ADHD, addiction, et cetera. And um, this had been developed over you know, decades by different people. And basically the bottom line is when you're using a pen to trace slowly, you're activating the fine motor neurons in your fingers, which then activates the motor cortex in the top part of your brain. As you rebuild strength in that part of the brain, it gives you more control over your emotions, specifically the negative emotion that you that you were talking about. It's a just a it's a way to, and we've made it into a game, um, and we're still building it. But um, I'm really excited about it because it used to be paper and pen. On we used to mark paper, and we had all these kids, you know, in out of home care doing it, and then they would calm down after doing this for you know over a ten week period. And that just blew my mind. And so I thought I've got to digitize this and get it into the app. <laughs> so that's what we've been doing. Wow. That's fabulous. Does yeah. it also help um, memory loss, like people with yeah, Alzheimer's? I it, and I think it will help on the stress side mm. of it. Right. Because this is the thing that no one talks about with dementia and Alzheimer's is how much stress takes down those synapses inside the brain to make that worse. Right. That's a whole other podcast. Right, right. Because there's a huge relationship between Alzheimer's and, and depression. Yes. And we're living longer too, right? A whole lot of things. And also right. the food and the lack of exercise. Do you talk about nutrition? Yes. Yeah, big oh, really? I had someone reach out to me today 
and said, I want to find out the relationship between, I want to, she said, I want to hear more about uh, mental health and diet and nutrition and the relationship between it. Definitely has a big impact. Did you do research on it? Yeah, well, we, we, our lab just demonstrated uh, probably three years ago now that sugar is as addictive as alcohol and nicotine. Sugar, like alcohol and nicotine, changes the brain. And sugar mm-hmm. is not really all food now. Right. And high fat and the fried foods. I mean, you just know yourself. Just think about when you eat. Oh, food. totally. When I'm stressed, I run to a cookie. Yeah, we all do. I run to... Chocolate, cookie, candy, ice exactly. cream. Yeah. And there's a reason for that. That's the part of the brain. They're wired together for survival. The stress and the reward pathways, mm-hmm. that's why you do that. It's learnt over long history. <laughs> and is there a way to reprogram the brain that's to the not brain. crave the sugar yes. and to be happy without it? And yes, to that's, not what be my, that's what my whole lab's really about, to be honest. Is that okay. So I feel like we need two, at least two more podcasts one would be about mental health and i'd like to talk about depression because i have a personal story but i also have a lot of insight into how i'd like to give people just a few tools there because i think that's valuable can Um, you give us one or two now wait well just right now is just push your shoulders back and take a deep breath but during during depression or a panic attack right now doesn't matter when just do it right now okay Push your shoulders back, put your hands on your hip and take a really deep breath and then think about how you feel by doing that. Push your shoulder back. Put your shoulders right back. Yeah, as if you're sitting up straight. Yeah, hands on your hip because mm-hmm. that will push them back further. Mm-hmm. Then take a really deep breath. And what does that do? So basically what you've done is taken on the dominant position in the animal kingdom. Mm. Whereas if you have your shoulders down, your arms crossed, that's the lower position. So you're immediately increasing the good hormones that relieve stress by taking just that body posture position. And it's also starting to, we, we now know it also starts to take down activity in the amygdala, which is that part of the brain that drives stress, anxiety, fear reactions, PTSD, etc. Mm-hmm. So that's just one little thing you can do immediately, anytime, mm-hmm. anywhere. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're basically, one, taking control of your brain through your body. And that's simple. Right. It's just easy because we don't remember. There is a company actually that's built something to remind people to do that. Wow. <laughs> right. Wow. How important. So simple. It's simple, but it's just not easy. We always forget. Um, right. We're always on the go. We're always running, busy. I love that one because it's really easy. Anyone mm-hmm. can do it right in a second and it takes no time to tell you. So, yeah, so I'm going to, uh, we're going to have you on again and we're going to talk about your journey in depression and anxiety and how you yes. overcame it. Yeah, using neuroplasticity. That's just for me. It doesn't mean I'm. Right. Uh, and I develop drugs and I right. do. If you see what I'm saying, I don't believe in one thing. I think there's multiple arms to things. Right. I I stress that strongly in the podcast that we're here to share our stories, not to say that it works for everyone and everybody has their own journey in recovery and how they attack depression and anxiety. But we're here to just share knowledge and hope. 
I love that. That's just the one thing I really love about podcasts. Um, but people have to be, the, the other thing I've learned, people have to be very discerning and ask questions and not just mm. believe everything that they hear too. You've got to take all knowledge in and be discerning about what works for you. Mm-hmm. That's right. really important. Really. Right. Like the power of intuition and what will work for us. One and thing, also, and, uh, one thing yeah. I'm not afraid to say is going for a walk outside for five minutes will do a lot of something. Right, <laughs> right. A hundred percent. It's funny. <laughs> I recorded today my next episode um, about how my first months during depression worked. And one of the f- fundamental questions that I keep on getting from any person that calls me about dealing with depression, anxiety, like, how do you deal with telling people? Like, should I tell people? What are they going to say about me? That's one of the number one questions I get. Like, who should I tell? How should I tell? What to expect? And I go into this when I, I was right away very open about it. And one of the things that saved me was my friend that took me for walks. And she used to say, even if you just go outside and sit on the steps, just get out. And she saved I believe she saved my life. I really believe it that by the fact that she just took me outside. And sometimes yeah. it wasn't down the road because I didn't have the energy. Yeah. And if it was five minutes, it was I came back a different person. Yeah. And now, and now what you can say to your people on the podcast or someone trying to help someone, get them to, if they can't, if they simply won't get out of bed, mm-hmm. get them to sit up. Right. The smallest <laughs> little change in position. Push their shoulders back. You're going to stimulate dopamine. So what's happening in depression? A decrease in dopamine. And so that means you don't want to move. And the more you don't want to move, the more you can't move. Mm. And the other thing I tell people too is just to get them to move their fingers. In the beginning, it's the simplest little, it just sounds ridiculously, doesn't it? It doesn't sound ridiculous to people that struggle because they know how hard it is to do, I think. yeah, It's for people that don't struggle. They're like, okay, really, what's it going to do? But I think people that struggle understand how movement is so hard to do when you're... Yeah, well, just just know that the reason it's so hard is because of a decrease in the brain of dopamine. Mm -hmm. Dopamine is the neurotransmitter that mediates movement. Mm. So so as an extreme example, why is that? Think of someone with Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. What, What drugs do we give them? We give them dopamine drugs to help them move. Mm. to initiate movement so with depression particularly more than anxiety there's a decrease over time in that neurotransmitter which which we're trying to give it back with drugs and other things right touching and getting you can just wiggle someone's finger or toes yourself that's even the double whammy because then you get the touch plus the dopamine. right right the double tipping <laughs> yeah so then, so then you don't even have to get them out of bed outside right right that's struggle in itself sometimes and then you want to give right. up you feel like they're right. not care enough about you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Selena, we're going to have two more, at least two more episodes with you. One about your journey in depression and how you healed without medication. And the other one is going to be about nutrition. Um, We're going to go a little bit more into the nutrition part with mental health and how it helps healthy eating, exercise and all that. And exercise. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I also want to hear a little bit about a little bit more. Maybe we'll go deep diving into the app and how it works with the rewiring of the brain. So we we have a lot cut off for us in the future. Um, I would say I use rewiring my brain to get me out first, Mm -hmm. even over nutrition and exercise. 
mm-hmm. um, which is really interesting. It's just because I'd studied the brain for a long time. Mm. So I was at advantage in that sense. So until next time, where it's can people... to talk to you. It was yes. a great, uh, really great. It was, uh, you know what I really loved about this one more than anything else? I've never, ever, ever in all the interviews I've done, had anyone asked me about Francesca's experience. And wow. that, that really touched me deeply. And But that, really that's grateful. what's the gold behind here. But that's so cool. I'm so grateful for that opportunity and for oh, her I'm so to happy. be in that way because no one cared. Wow. That's sad. Well, we're going to change that because we care. We care about her and her suffering. <laughs> You're so right about who knows what was going to happen in this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) That Um, was the best outcome ever. (laughs) Yeah, okay, I'm happy. Well, I want to ask you one last question before you leave. What does hope mean to you? What does the word hope mean to you? Hope for me means um, it's got lots of meaning. It's got a spiritual meaning and it's got a compassionate Meaning my hope is that as humans, we'll start to treat each other like humans. Mm. And that's because I'm an idealist and I really like peace. But I think that's really my ideal person talking. Hope for me can be as simple as wiggle your toes mm. and then feel how, notice how you feel. And what did the two of us just give you? We just gave you hope. Nice. You are in charge of your brain. You are the boss of your brain. Mm. Know that. Don't give it away to anyone else. Take take back control. That's take what I did and that changed everything for me. Take ownership of yeah. your brain. Mm. And just wiggle your toes. If it's if you can't do anything else, just wiggle your toes. And stand and up good, straight. It's good enough for me. Good enough. Okay. Where can people find more about you? Like if they uh, want to so, read about you, hear yeah, more I, of what you spoke, because you did a TED Talk, you have a lot of literature. So tell people where they can find you until next time, which hopefully will be soon, because I'm sure people are going to say, when are you having Selena on again? <laughs> <laughs> it's Selena, S-E-L-E-N-A-B.com. That's my website. And I have some books I've written. I've written a lot of science papers. I've done interviews and lots of things like that. You can find everything to do with me there. I'm also starting a podcast around brain, like to just, just teaching people how the brain works, just some basic facts that are really simple that can be applied to help people's life shine a little bit more. So we're going to have that in the show notes. We're going to have Selena's website. You can find her all everything about her on her website and how to contact her. And she is the most loving, nice, spiritual person. And I can vouch that no matter who reaches out to her, she will respond. With <laughs> Probably true. she will respond with a smiley and a flower. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, and I do love. like my emojis. <laughs> And lots of love and positive energy. So thank you for joining us for today. We're going to see you soon. And have a, have a safe trip back to Australia and enjoy California for now. And I uh, hope to see you next time very soon. Thank you for joining us and taking the time to listen. I really appreciate it. Please hit the subscribe button so you can hear further episodes. If you are listening to us on iTunes, please leave feedback and ratings below. Let us know if there's any topic that you would like to hear from us in the future. Bye till next time.